This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. It's Christmas time and the holiday season here in the United States and around the world, and it's an ideal time to think about gifts, gifts that we've been given and gifts that we give to each other, which is an interesting segue into today's guest, Darla Tedegren of Team Illuminate. She has been an absolute joy to watch in USA Crits, in the PRT, and the best races here in the United States. And now we get to watch her go international with her new contract with Team Illuminate. I have so much enjoyed the photographs and the life that she's brought to the Peloton. And so it was an ideal time to sit down and talk to her about just exactly why it is that she's so happy all the time. And the secret is gift wrap. As an interesting aside, if you want to talk about gift wrap, the Wide Angle Podium Network is the gift wrap for your ears. It is the home of the world's only top tier independent cycling media, the home of this podcast. And it's something that we'd love you to consider becoming a member of. So head on over to WideAnglePodium.com to see a full lineup of the shows that we have available and all the content that you can stream, put into your earbuds, watch on YouTube, all of it. While we're talking about things that happen online, also please remember to follow along on this podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is that you get your podcast from. And if you really love what you're hearing, leave us a review. It'll help others find the show and find out more about the stuff that's happening on the network. Without any further ado, let's get into our interview here with Starla Tedegren. My name is Starla Tedegreen. I race for Team Illuminate, and I live in Boulder, Colorado. We need to start off the show by acknowledging momentousness. Of course, the momentous occasion is happy birthday. Thank you. Happy almost birthday. (laughs) For those that don't know, Starla and I share the indignity or the blessing, depending on your sense of direction, of having the Christmas birthdays. Hers is a few days before Christmas. Mine is a few days after Christmas. What it means, however, in reality is that both of us have been subject to the Christmas shaft or the Christmas birthday shaft in that you get kind of forgotten by friends and family and or worse yet, you get the do you want one big gift or do you want one small gift? So Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever gotten the Christmas birthday shaft? A (laughs) hundred percent. It was always, well, do you want the big birthday present or do you want a big birthday present or do you want a big Christmas present? And so I always had to choose like if, you know, I'd get a bunch of little small gifts on the birthday and then a big one on Christmas or vice versa. And so I was always having to choose And it was always a huge like hissy fit for me because I was like, that's not fair. My sister gets both (laughs) because her birthday's in May. (laughs) So for me, yeah, it was it was always a little bit difficult. For me, it was always when do we actually get to hold my birthday party? So as like a little kid, because my birthday was less than a week after Christmas, 
we could never actually have it on Christmas on the the day of the birthday because that would require getting the family together too many times in one week. So we'd end up having to do like the New Year's Day birthday party because that was exactly seven days after Christmas. When I met my wife, in fact, it was the very first year that we had been dating. She made a huge to do about my 30th birthday that kind of shifted because my wife realized that this had been a shaft for me and I'd been kind of like emotional about it. So she ended up being very, very progressive about making sure to celebrate my birthday in a, in a bigger way or making a bigger to do about it on your side with, with your husband and with your friends and your very close knit group, have they kind of adopted a, we need to really focus in and celebrate on Starla, or was that something that you had to tell them basically to do? I don't think I really had to voice it too much because as I became an adult, I made a very clear point that it wasn't just a birthday. It was a birthday week or even month and I have a lot of really, really close friends that were all December babies. And some are a couple of days before me, a couple of days after on the 21st, like we're all spread out and we were all really sick of getting shafted essentially because of Christmas. And so we decided to claim the entire month and then we would claim the week around our birthdays. And so it was kind of like, we're, we're going to just celebrate and do awesome things for like a week. And so pretty much between like my super close group of friends, the entire month of December was just celebration. And so when I met my husband, it was very clear to him that no, we're celebrating the whole week, the whole month. We're just going to make it a big deal. (laughs) I happen to have it on good authority. Well, mostly because you told me it, But Christmas is your favorite holiday. Why is it? Well, so (laughs) to be perfectly honest, so the reason I love Christmas so much is, I don't know how to say this without sounding weird. I love unwrapping presents and I love watching people unwrap presents. And so it's not so much about the gift, like you could wrap a rock and as long as I get to open it, I'm excited. So, so I think it's the element of surprise. Like I love, I love surprises and my husband is terrible at them. He can't keep a secret to save his life. And so a lot of the time, like when we give gifts or, or whatnot, because one, he gets so nervous. He's like, well, I don't know what to get you. I usually end up getting my own gifts of things that I need for generally, usually cycling (laughs) Um, or my training. I give it to him and then I'm like, just wrap it. And so then when Christmas time comes around or my birthday or whatever, then it's more the just excitement of unwrapping it, (laughs) even though I already know what probably what it is. Yeah. And like a lot of the time, cause I'm like, we don't really need things where we're both pretty simplistic in that way. And so like, I'll wrap food even. Like, <laughs> I'll do like a surprise of like, oh, it's hot cocoa or it could be whatever, but it's just kind of like, let's stock the stuffings with that. So it's more like purposeful things that we need and that we'll use every day then, you know, or be like socks, underwear, t-shirts, whatever, just things to kind of replenish. 
but it's not like tchotchke gifts or, or things like that to clutter the home or that are unnecessary. For you, 2020, and this is moving away from Christmas and birthday discussions to more general life, but for you, 2020 has been kind of a transitional year. There's been a few things that have gone up and down for you. And one of the most, or one of the largest ones is that you moved from your home in Portland, Oregon to a new place near Boulder. And it's kind of like the question who is, who's the person who's going to upend their entire life during 2020 to move to a new place? Well, you're the answer. It's Starla Tedegren. Why is it that you decided that 2020 was the year that you wanted to find greener pastures or bigger mountains? It was COVID. My, my husband, he's, he has, um, a genetic disease that causes him health problems. And so he had a kidney transplant a handful of years ago. And then more recently, um, he had open heart surgery and it wasn't by any means, anything from being unhealthy. It's just the genetic disease that he has. And so we, we went into quarantine prior to COVID hitting because his surgery was in January. And so we needed to make sure that everybody was healthy and in the best situation possible for him to have the surgery. And so we pretty much were cut off starting end of December and then had the surgery. It was super successful. And then just as soon as like our lives were starting to get back to normal, COVID hit and we were on lockdown again. We were uh, living in Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the river from Portland. And we're just sitting there staring at each other and we're like, we don't know how long this is going to go on. And if we're going to be stuck for a while, whether it's months or years, where do we want to be stuck? The Northwest just wasn't it for us. And so we started going down a list of like, well, what do we want? And the biggest thing was access to the outdoors, access to trails. And so we started in our minds and on maps, just like bouncing around the country and trying to think through different places that we've already lived, different places we might want to live. And we ended up on Boulder area and he had lived here 20 years ago and he had some idea of the area. And I've always, ever since I was a kid had fantasized of living in Colorado. Like I built it up in my head. It's this just magical mountain place. <laughs> and so we had a buddy here, um, that has some property and he was like, yeah, come down in your van and camp out on our, my property and just check out the area. So we were completely self-contained and drove down here and camped out on his property and just drove around and looked at different neighborhoods and both completely fell in love with it. So we're like, you know what, let's do this. And a lot of other things, just pieces fell into place. And next thing we knew come August, and this was, I think two months after we started the process, we landed here. And now every day we're like, oh my gosh, we live here. I can't believe we live here. And we're just super excited about it. As excited as you are about living in Boulder, there are two members of your family who I know from Instagram are way more excited about living in Boulder. And I'm talking about the doggos. 
you are the proud owner of two Australian Shepherds. What are their names to start with? So Abby is our girl dog and Angus is our boy dog. So one is red and white and the other is black and white. Which one is which? Abby's the red dog. So that that's what we actually call her sometimes. It's either little girl, LG, or the red dog. <laughs> and then Angus is referred to as Angus or Bobo. <laughs> okay, so Bobo, you've there's a story there. You you got to explain where Bobo came from. I my husband just started calling him that because he is just He's a bobo. He's just doofy and just a clown. And yeah, so it was just kind of a nickname. He called him at once and it just kind of stuck and he responds to it now. So I'm not sure which one we call him more, Angus or Bobo. As I said earlier on, I kind of became acquainted with Abby and Bobo because of Instagram. And the amount of fun and joy and just running from sunlight to sunset that these guys are experiencing in Boulder is incredible. Absolutely. There's so many rabbits to chase here and they absolutely love it and just love the outdoors. And I think they appreciate it not being as wet as the Pacific Northwest was um, because we would always have to wipe their feet off every time they came into the house from playing outside. And so I think they like the dry and the sun and they both just absolutely love the snow. Well, why don't we move away from the dogs to talking more about bike racing and Starla Tedegrin as the athlete? You have a website, starlatetagrant.com, and on that website, it has a very nice story about kind of your origins in bike racing and in athletics as general. I'd like to hear it in your own words now, why being a lifelong athlete has been so critical to you, because it's clear that sports, soccer, track, running, whatever it was, any kind of physical activity was something that the young Starla Tedegrin loved doing. How has that translated over to you now as an adult? It's kind of hard to talk, I mean, talk about, to separate or to even distinguish it as anything other than who I am. Like ever since I was, I can remember just like being a, a kid, I was always wanting to be outdoors, always wanting to be, active and competitive, whether my sister wanted to or not. (laughs) Um, It's always just something I've enjoyed and what has always just made me feel alive. It has just always been a part of me, I guess. And like growing up, I didn't have like team sports or access to sports other than what I made up. Me and my sister, we were homeschooled up until eighth grade for me. And I think it was her sophomore year until we went into public school. And so that was my first introduction to actual team sports um, or even individual sports for that matter. I mean, when I was little, it was always running or swimming or biking or whatever I could do. But I was just like, as long as I was active, I was happy. And so then Once I did get into public school and had that access, then I was like, all right, let's run track. Let's play soccer. Let's, let's do everything we can possibly do to 
not only like push myself, but see, see what I was good at, see what I was passionate about. Um, and more just, just having fun because all of it, all of the sport to me was just the best thing in the world. Does this sport, does being an athlete continue to remain fun for you? You've been on multiple UCI teams. You were the 2019 USA Crits individual champion. You've had some incredible accomplishments in this sport or in sport in general. Is being an athlete something that you still enjoy doing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, whether I'm on a bike or if I'm trail running or out hiking or whatever I'm doing, as long as I'm somehow like physically pushing myself, I'm just, it's just the greatest thing to me. <laughs> like I just have a really hard time sitting down and not being active. Like I don't feel like I am moving forward if I'm not being active, which I guess physically I'm not <laughs> moving forward. And so like I struggle, like I, I totally struggle if I'm not, if I'm not pushing myself somehow. You know, like the rest of us, that at some point in time, you have to slow down. You can't train at 110% every day of the year. That vacations and time off and de-stressing are a critical component for any lifelong athlete. A lot of us will be, you'll, we'll get bent out of shape. Like, what do you mean? We, we're going on vacation. Of course, we're going to bring our bike with us. You know, we... We have to absolutely continue to train through Christmases and Thanksgivings and all those, you know, a day off. That's just completely unacceptable, right? But the reality is that it's totally appropriate and totally fine. How do you continue to maintain positivity and a level of sanity within this sport and as an athlete? What do you mean I can't take my bike with me on vacation? <laughs> It, it's a constant, yes, I think struggle with, with me and my husband where I'm like, oh, let's take bikes. Oh, let's do this. And like, ah, you know, it's like, I want to be active whenever we go places. That's not a bike race. And for me, it's finding compromise and whoever I'm with, whether it's my husband or friends, it's like, okay, I need to be fair to everyone. And also I'm like, it is, it's great to take a, to take a break and to relax, but I think why me and my husband get on so well is like, we're both terrible at relaxing. When we do go on vacation, we, we want to see everything. We want to do everything. We are super, I mean, we're super active people. And, but it's like, I do realize that yes, you need downtime. You need recovery time, not only physically, but mentally. And so for me, I think if I can plan it, it's way easier than just, being like, oh, okay, now we're just going to hang out or we're just going to take a rest day. So like for me, it's really great having a coach because my coach can tell me like today's a rest day and like literally today is a rest day for me. And I'm struggling so hard not to be like, oh, okay, I'm going to do the laundry. I'm going to, you know, vacuum the whole house and mop the floors. And because I'm like, oh, wait, that's not a rest day. It's just get stuff done day. <laughs> Let's segue away from get stuff done day or errand day or recovery day to racing day. If you take a look at your race results going back even pre-2010, 
you have this sort of mantra, if, if I could put one on you, that is, if there's a white line on the ground, Starla's going to race to it. You have raced all over the country, all different types and styles of racing. You've raced all different, you know, surfaces of racing between mountain bike and road racing and, and all of it. You have adopted this kind of lifestyle of just, you know what, whatever anybody says is commitment, I'm going to go to the nth degree to that. I am going full in all gas all the time. I'm going to race myself into, into the history books. I think that's just how I am, whether it's with bike racing or my design or anything that I do, I want to, I want to be the best at it. And I wasn't, I wasn't born a natural athlete. Like there's some people that are just gifted, like hundred percent gifted. And as much as I've always wanted to be one of those people, I'm not, I have a really strong work ethic and want to set myself up the best I can for success. And for me, I mean, most of my bike racing career wasn't about me. It was about my teammates. It was about the team objective. And like if you, I go back or you or whoever goes back and looks at my results, it's, they're all over the place. Like sometimes there's wins, sometimes there's DNFs. And to me, it's not about me winning bike races. It's about, this is the plan and for the team or an individual rider or whatever. And it's like, well, I'm going to ride to the best of my ability to achieve this. Sometimes it is about me and that's a lot of pressure. And honestly, the, the best races I've had is when it's like, I just have pure freedom and I can race the race, how the race needs to be raced to be won. If a director tells me, he's like, well, we're going to do this and this person's going to lead you out and this is how it's going to unfold. I go into a panic because to me, a bike race isn't something that can be predicted necessarily. Like I watch a bike race and I watch it unfold and I am paying attention to what riders are suffering and what they're doing. And it's like I can watch it unfold in front of me, but you can't really do that on the sidelines before the race starts. And so I always would struggle when directors would be like, well, this person is going to take you to this corner and then you need to sprint from here. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not that kind of a bike racer. I race off of instinct. So when I have free reign to race how I know how to race, then I can get the job done. And I'm definitely an opportunistic kind of racer. And if I don't see the opportunity, then I create it. You first came to my attention because of your affiliation with Hagen's Berman Superman. And the way that an outsider would look at that team is that it's a consummate professional drilled organization where every part of the race or every part of an event is strategized out beforehand. So the, the mission would be to win the race, but there would be on lap one, this would happen on lap three, this would happen on lap five, this would happen. That's the way that you, or the way that I would view it from the outside, looking at the results that you had. What I'm 
coming to potentially learn here is that my belief might not be 100% accurate, that that might not have been the way that the actual strategy played out. Am I wrong? Um, no. I was, <laughs> so, I mean, it was an amazing, amazing group of athletes. And I think what really set us apart and made us successful was that we were all in it for each other. Like we a hundred percent believed in each other, trusted in each other's abilities. And so, yeah, we'd go into a race and we'd have an objective either to win it or to go for a Jersey or whatever it was. And so we each had roles that, yes, this, this is the role that you're going to play. And this is the person that we're riding for. But we also knew that things don't go out as planned, but we can all trust in each other that we know that each rider will make the right decision to achieve the overall goal. And so it wasn't like, okay, Starla on this lap, you attack. Okay, Lily on this lap, you attack. It wasn't as precise as that. Like we knew we needed to keep the race fast. We needed to continuously attack or whatever it was to eventually achieve whatever our goal was. And so for us, it was just like, we're feeding off of each other what that one person did. Okay, well then this, uh, this makes sense to then do this next to then achieve this. And so it was just all of us knowing each other so well as riders and where our strengths were and how best we could each then support each other to achieve the end goal. I want to talk about a very specific relationship within the Hoggins Berman Superman team. And that is the relationship between you, the 2019 individual champ for USA Crits, and Harriet Owen, the winner of a lot of the individual races and one of the best finishers in the American Criterium Peloton. The fact that there can be two phenomenal athletes on one team is not unusual. The way that the two of you would end up working together where eventually you would win a race, Harriet would get second. Harriet would win a race, you'd win the field sprint. The way that there was a, a, a harmony between the two riders is the unusual thing because you don't often see two people on the same team excelling without conflict again because we had an overall goal and we respected each other as riders i think when usa crits started off uh lily won the first race in el paso her and lil or um leanne were in a break together and ended up staying away the whole time with one other rider so they wrapped up first second and third and then i won this real field sprint for fourth so then going into the next race was Athens and it was me and Julie were the only two riders that went. And so the direction there was just go for the sprint points because that will put you ahead of Lily and uh, ahead of everybody else. And then you'll sew up the overall to start leading the series. So going into that race, it wasn't about winning it. It was just getting those points. And so that was the objective and I was able to achieve it and mostly stay out of the crashes. That was a crazy night. And so from there, every time we went into another USA crits race, 
it was all about me just going for the points and it didn't matter how I finished because we were then focused on who was going to win that race. And so it was always about who was the best rider for that race. And because we were a team that did both stage racing and crit racing, it was sometimes the person that might be best on that course was tired because they just came off of a stage race. And so for us, it was a lot about consistency and I was a writer who did all the crits, all the stage races. And so I was a very consistent writer, but maybe I wouldn't be so fresh for a finish. And so for me, the objective was always just go for the points, stay ahead in the points. And so when it came with, with Harriet, I mean, she's a phenomenal sprinter and she has the ability to move through a messy pack at the finish, which I'm not necessarily the best at. And so it wasn't a competition between us. It's like, we both had our strengths and where, you know, she would sit in and then be able to finish it off at the end with a phenomenal sprint. Whereas I'm more of a writer who can go over and over and over and over again, get into a break, sprint from break. It was just a different strength. And so when it came down to kind of the end of the series where a lot of the time it was me and Harriet racing together. It was just fun. It was like, we just had a great time and it wasn't like, you're going to lead me out. I'm going to lead you out. We just both knew how to race a race. And I think she said it once in an interview, I I think it was um, at Littleton, she won, I ended up getting second. And it was like, we do best when we just stay out of each other's way. And if we need each other, then we'll absolutely hundred support, like support each other hundred percent. Like, I mean, I can't even count how many times I've let her out, but a lot of the time it, she is just also an instinctual writer. And so we know where we need to be and it wasn't, yeah, it's like stay out of each other's way, but maybe not necessarily leading each other out in the finish. And so it was always turned out super successful. Just let us do our own thing. Talk about this run that you had in 2019 from Salt Lake to San Rafael to Littleton. It was an absolutely insane three weeks in a row, three podiums in a row at USA Crits races. So against the strongest fields of women in the criterium scene in the country, if not the world. That type of win streak is is not normal in any way, shape, or form. Do you have to, as an athlete, step back and look at yourself and go, okay, what I just accomplished here is incredible and it's not going to happen all the time. So I should think about this, savor this, capture these feelings and process them so I know what it's going to be like when the not so good times come around like they always do for every athlete. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't take any podium for granted. It's because there's so many phenomenal riders out there that are just giving it their all. And I mean, sometimes it's luck. You're staying out of the crashes. You happen to be fit on that day and things just fall into place. And so, I mean, every time I stood on, on the podium for USA crits or any podium for that matter, it's, Absolutely. It's like I close my eyes for a second, take a moment, take a breath and be like, be present and enjoy this moment because, yeah, they don't they don't come that often. And so 
with with USA Crits this year was it, it was really special that there were so many podiums and firsts and seconds and thirds. And I think a lot of it was that you kind of get into a rhythm where you know how other teams are racing, you know how your teammates are racing, you know where your fitness is and your confidence starts to go up. And you you just know how to read the race and you feel confident about it, I guess. And so you're going into these races with a lot of confidence and trust in your teammates and with the job that just needs to be done. And so, and for me, like San Rafael was so special. Like I've loved that race. Like my cycling career started in the Bay area and that was one of my first, what we used to call big races. And the first time I ever raced that race, I ended up in a break with like Shelly Olds and um, Sarah Bamberger. And it was like all these big names that I was just like, oh my goodness, I am completely out of my element. I shouldn't be here. And they completely used me up. And <laughs> it was looking back on it. I'm like, oh, I completely was just, yeah, run over by those ladies. And it was awesome. It was a learning experience, but so I've always gone back to that race, wanting to win it. I've gotten seconds and thirds, and then I finally won it. And so that has kind of become, no matter what team I'm on, that's kind of like my race. And so when we went into it this year in USA Crits, it was like, okay, our objective is to win this race. And we don't care how it's done. They were like, yes, Starla, we know this is your race. and We'd love for you to win it. But that, if that's not how it plays out, that's that's fine. And I was totally okay with that because it was like totally leading the USA crits overall. This is great. I'm just happy to be back here. And it wasn't the plan how I won it. I, it was an accident almost, <laughs> but it going into the final, final lap, it was the gambler's preem Go, going into lap. Yeah. Or so I guess second to last lap was gambler's preem and a rider jumped and I was there. So I was like, well, I'm just going to go with her. So I don't want her to get away and we don't want to be chasing. And I was on her wheel and I was like, I'm feeling great. And why don't I just take it, take the gambler's preem. And if I blow up or whatever happens, I know I have Harriet and everybody else back there who can win the race. So I went for the gambler's preem jumped off her wheel, took it and looked back. And I was like, I have space. I'm just going to keep going. And I felt, felt amazing. And I was like, I don't know how I'm still out here. I can't believe this is going on. Oh my goodness. Like <laughs> totally started to panic. But at the same time, I was like, I know what this kind of an effort feels like and I can do it. And so coming into the final two turns, the, the writer that was with me. She kept trying to come around me and I was like, there's no way I am going to let you come around me in these final two turns. I know I have to be first through that final turn to make it. And so I just had to keep swinging to make sure she wouldn't come around me. And when I made that final turn, it was just head down, completely went blind, deaf, like all my senses just shut off and across the line. And then my teammate Liza comes up to me and I was like, did I get it? Did I get it? Like, I was so confused. And she was like, 
you're an idiot. Yeah, they've been announcing your name and screaming your name. And I was like, I had no idea. (laughs) Okay, so it's one thing to take the gambler's preem. I mean, we've all seen it done. We've all hopefully taken a shot at it and got it. It is another universe of world to take the gambler's preem and then run with it. I mean, they call it the gambler's preem for a reason because you are throwing the chance of winning the race in order to get this big cash prize before the race actually ends on the penultimate lap. When you jump for this and you get the gambler's preem and then you put your head down to go for the remainder of the race, what is that like? When do you realize that, oh my God, I really got a chance of winning this race? I think it was on the back stretch. When I looked back, I had that rider on my wheel and I looked back and the pack was coming around turn two. And I was like, how is this possible? Did they just stop racing? Am I missing something? Like I was, I was just shocked. But at that point I was like, I still have the legs. I still like, I wasn't suffering enough at that point. And so then it was more just don't screw this up. Don't let that other rider on your wheel somehow get in front of you, jump you to that last corner. And I knew it's like, as long as I could get myself to that last corner first, I knew I had a strong enough sprint that there was no way she was going to come around me. And so it was just be smart and put your head down and do the work. 2019 comes to an end and 2020 you were set to transition away from this U.S. primarily focused domestic continental pro team with Hoggins Berman to a much more international focused team Illuminate, which itself kind of an ironic name because it's, well, your kits are all black, but how how did you find your way from Hoggins Berman to this UCI team illuminate? I think a lot of us would have stayed with Hoggins Berman had it not dissolved. And so I, I had some other options and with everything that me and my husband had been through, it was kind of like, do I keep racing? Do I quit? What, what do I do? And Personally, for me, it was like quitting wasn't an option, but I also didn't want to be selfish. And so it was, how do I continue to pursue being an athlete and racing bikes, but make it something that we can share and that's fair to both of us. And so I had had a contract to race domestically again, and I was excited about the team, the people I was going to be racing with, but I wasn't super excited to be doing more of the same. I wanted to have a different opportunity and really see like, how do I stack up in the like international UCI scene? I knew I had the ability and I wanted the experience before being okay with like hanging it up because I just wasn't there yet. I wasn't ready to, to just walk away. And so So I started talking to Chris, the owner of Illuminate, and a lot of things just kind of aligned um, with what I wanted to do. And it's, I wanted the opportunity to, to raise more UCI international races, but 
also wanted the ability to have my husband come and travel with me so that we could share that travel experience together and make it more than just me and racing bikes. Like we wanted it to be an experience that we could share together. And so as hard as it was to give up that domestic contract and I felt like I was letting a lot of people down and it was just, it felt like I was a really bad breakup, but it was all me. <laughs> and so, it, but it was like, it was something that I had to do for both me and my husband because he's been so incredibly supportive of me, my entire racing career and has made so many sacrifices for me. And so I, when this opportunity came up, it was kind of a no brainer, I guess, for us, because it was something that we could do together and explore and see different parts of the world. And Dale let me pursue my pa passion for racing, but also test it to see just really how far I could take it. If you look at Team Illuminate's race schedule, and this is according to their website, they race in a lot of places that one wouldn't typically associate with UCI professional bike racing. You look at their calendar, it's it's heavy on races in Kazakhstan or in South Korea or races in South America. These are not the northern France, Belgium, low countries type schedules. Why is this something that's attractive to you as an American bike racer? Well, one thing about the team that was attractive to me is that they take a chance on riders that other teams you know, wouldn't necessarily look at. And so like I was being brought on in a leadership role and I was super excited about that because throughout my career, it's like I've mentored younger riders or up and coming riders. And it's probably one of my favorite parts about racing is helping others to achieve. And so this team was an opportunity to have riders from Thailand and Japan and Colombia and the US. And it was a whole bunch of different riders and personalities and language barriers. And then getting to travel to these different countries that, yeah, they're not necessarily on the, the world cycling map. But I think that was part of what was so special about it is these are, you know, smaller races or smaller countries that are so passionate about cycling. And it was just to be able to share in that experience and not only test myself, but support these younger riders and help mentor them through these larger races. Because, I mean, I have had the experience of racing in with those, you know, the large UCI European fields before, but I think this was just kind of like a stepping stone for a new experience and a new way to push and challenge myself and also help others through the experience as well. Even though you want, you planned on going and racing UCI races all over the world, you still had a desire to focus here at home on being a crit racer. And one thing that we had talked about before we started recording was this desire that you had to be basically a troublemaker in U.S. crits and U.S. domestic races, meaning you'd show up and you were going to purposefully try to beat your former teammates, beat your former colleagues from Hoggins Berman at their own games, get into the sprint trains, get into the breakaways, try to take it to Harriet Owen or try to outthink Lily Williams and you know, be as aggressive a bike racer as you possibly could. 
Why was that something that was still important to you, even though you wanted to do this UCI international calendar as well? So that was that was one thing I really liked about Illuminate is that I still had a lot of freedom, um, obviously, to do the team races and get to travel all over and do them, but also to then be able to race here in the U.S. and uh, kind of have a free-for-all because usually, I mean, on teams that I've raced for, I was a domestique. And every once in a while, yeah, I got the opportunity to to go for a win or a jersey. And so with Illuminate, it was an opportunity that, yeah, we don't have many U.S. riders. We're not going to get a lot of the foreign um, teammates over here. And so it's like, you'll totally have the freedom just to go race and have fun. I mean, I love USA crits. And I mean, when I first started racing, that's all I did was crit racing. And so it's definitely where I have the most fun and I, it's the most exciting to me. I mean, stage racing has its own overall excitement, but crit racing is, it's just, I mean, it's the best. (laughs) So, so for me, it was, I was like, yeah, I still totally want to go after the USA crits and yeah, I'm not on a D one team anymore, but that doesn't mean that, yeah, I can't disrupt things and go for the overall or go for wins. And it was just, I felt like I had the freedom just to go race my bike and yeah, be that troublemaker. Is that a liberating feeling? Go into, you name it, whatever P1, P12, top level American race USA crits or not, is it a liberating feeling to walk in there and say, I have no teammates, no responsibilities. It's a hundred percent my focus and a hundred percent on me. Oh gosh. Yeah. It's the, it's the most incredible feeling because nobody, nobody's going to point fingers or have judgments on the job that you did, or you're not letting anybody down. If you weren't able to successfully do the job that you were given. It's like, you just go in there and you're like, these are my friends. I'm not, you know, having to be like, I'm with this team and can't hang out with this team or whatever. I'm just here to have a party and have fun and just race my bike how I want to race it. And so if I feel like I can race a breakaway today, that's what I'm going to do. If I feel like, you know what, no, I'm actually just going to sit in and sprint at the end and that's what I can do. And so, yeah, having that freedom is just that. It's complete freedom and it's it's awesome. It's completely liberating. Acknowledging that vaccines are just now rolling out of production facilities and the first inoculations are being given in the United States and around the world. That fact aside, and let's say that there is racing this year or you could live in the dream world that you want to live in, what is it that you want 2021 to look like for you as Starla Tedegren, the bike racer? There's the the dream of what I want it to look like. And then there's the realist in me <laughs> that knows that it's not going to be that dream scenario. I mean, me and Chris are constantly talking um, on Illuminate about what the season will be. We have a calendar built out in Europe and Asia and, you know, all over the place of these are the races that, that we want to go to. And there's the dream calendar. And then there's, you know, also local races that we can do. And it's like the Gila's and the Redlands and the Joe Martins and 
sea otter and and whatnot but then there's also then the worst case scenario where it's like yeah we're not going to be racing together and so i've spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to come to terms with again making these sacrifices and the like the time that it takes to train and the focus that it takes and also just there's so many unanswered questions like well why am i doing this and what am i working towards and so i finally came to the point where i'm like it's not necessarily about the races that i'm going to it's more about enjoying the bike and trying to figure out a way to continue to push myself and grow as an athlete but not have that tied to one race and so for for me and for the team what i think we're looking to accomplish in 2021 is to challenge ourselves in unexpected ways and so for me especially since moving here to Colorado, I've spent a lot of time on the mountain bike and the gravel bike. And it's just been so much fun just to kind of just have fun on the bike again and to enjoy it and to grow skills and learn new things. And so for me, I think the season is going to be without putting too much pressure on myself. I think there's going to be some FKT attempts on the dirt and I think those are some experiences that me and my husband can have together. And so it's not necessarily going to be, oh, we're just going to the spot. I'm going to go for the attempt and then we go home. It's going to be like, no, we're going to go on an adventure. We're going to have some fun and I'm going to casually go for this FKT and not put too much pressure on myself. And if I get it, awesome. If I don't, well, I tried and it was a way, you know, to do something new and push myself as an athlete and just, again, focus on having fun on the bike again. And if racing can safely return, then 100% I'll be doing the USA crits and I'll be doing the stage races and the international travel and racing. But I'm not holding my breath. Being newly introduced to the gravel and road scene, I now know that FKT means fastest known time. Never heard that before. Uh, it's definitely not like a term or like, I guess it's like the Strava KOM of a much more um, advanced segment than anything that we could possibly imagine in road racing. And so I find it fascinating to be like, what's the fastest known time on this ridge line that's 200 miles long or something like that? It's, it's, it's another world where you where you're living now because it's a wide open space there and it's so amazing to get to watch you live through that like massively wide open space compared to like the east coast where it's like nope there's one town there there's another town there you can ride between those two so yeah out here it's definitely a little more there's no water there's no help there's no services there's no people (laughs) so it's a little scary and as a, I mean, most of my career, I've been a crit racer. And so for me to be going out and looking at a hundred and 150 mile races on the dirt is a hundred percent out of my wheelhouse and my comfort zone. But I think that's what is so exciting about it because I, I see it as like, how am I going to grow as an athlete? And I think this is a perfect opportunity to really test that and push that and 
again, just have fun doing it. Well, Starla, we are very much looking forward to watching you have more fun on the bike and hopefully becoming the biggest troublemaker in all of USA crits for 2021 and beyond. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. So thank you so much for having me. And I'm really excited to see what all of us can do next year. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. A proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. For more in Criterium News coverage and just all things about crit racing, follow us on Instagram or Twitter, at Criterium Nation. Please join us here next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation. The Slow Ride Podcast, three idiots who are usually wrong. The Slow Ride Podcast, the titanium of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. It's like if David Vanderpool had a podcast. The Slow Ride Podcast, the Zwift Racing of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, find the real advice. The Slow Ride Podcast, the arrow helmet of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, sport leader coming through. The Slow Ride Podcast, when's Lance gonna sue us? The Slow Ride Podcast, the experts in French cycling. The Slow Ride Podcast. Official Fan Experience Zone on Facebook. The Slow Ride Podcast, the gravel bike of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, both vertically and horizontally compliant. The Slow Ride Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday.